please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Scripture reading today, oh, that's hot. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be looking at just five verses today, verses 25 through 30, where the Holy Scriptures read, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to be to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we go to God's word today? Father, we ask that we would find the rest that you offer in Christ today. There's one here who has not come to that rest at all, Lord. We ask that today would be the day of salvation for them, where they would see with spiritual eyes the rest that Christ offers. Father, we also pray for the Christian here today who has become restless, who has wandered from resting in Christ, whether that be to chase things of this world or just any kind of sin that has crept in, Lord. We just ask that they would get their eyes back on Christ and rest there, for there is no rest anywhere else. Help us now to understand this truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. At the age of 53... He had completely lost his ability to sleep. What first began with trouble sleeping at night gradually developed and worsened over time and got worse and worse to the point where he was having speech problems. He had coordination issues. He began to have hallucinations, delirium, and eventually dementia. And then just four months after having checked himself into a sleep clinic trying to get help For his restlessness, he slipped into a coma and he died. And why? Because this Italian man suffered from a rare condition called fatal insomnia. What is that? Well, fatal insomnia is a condition where when you go to sleep, you're neither fully asleep, but neither are you fully awake. And this inability to hit true sleep wreaks havoc upon the body resulting in the body's complete deterioration. Now, that's the extreme case of sleep deprivation, but even if you don't have that extreme version, fatal insomnia, scientists tell us that if you don't regularly hit the REM stage of sleep, which is the rapid eye movement stage where your eyes are all fluttering about and you're supposed to be the deep part of sleep, 
It also can result in severe problems. It can result in tiredness, anxiety, depression. And I didn't know this, even PTSD. It gets pretty bad. And though a lack of enough REM sleep might not outright kill you, it can certainly lead to devastating effects upon your life. In fact, not only do Americans spend over $1 billion a year treating sleep conditions, uh, research have estimated that the decreased productivity due to sleep deprivation has an economic hit of more than $12 billion a year. It's quite the impacting problem. And why? All because people are struggling to get the rest that their bodies truly need. When it comes to rest, even if you aren't one of the 70 million people who suffers from some kind of sleep disorder, which is about 30% of the adult population, the reality is every single one of us, 100% of humanity, is born with a spiritual sleep disorder that is infinitely more dangerous than, evil, than even fatal insomnia. It's not just the right, it's in the spiritual sleep disorder, it's not just a lack of quality of spiritual rest. It's not just a lack of enough quantity of spiritual rest. It is spiritual fatal insomnia, which results in just that every time, which is spiritual death. See, like fatal insomnia, spiritual fatal insomnia leaves our spiritual bodies completely unable to rest, unable to be rejuvenated, restored to good spiritual health. And because of our spiritual inability to find true rest, every single one of us eventually withers away and dies spiritually. Do you believe that? That's how we're born. That is how all of us come into this world, and it is the inevitable path that we follow which leads to our destruction. And while there is no cure for the physical condition of spiritual, or, of, or sorry, a physical fatal insomnia, Thankfully, though, there is a cure for the spiritual condition of it, and that cure is found in our passage this morning. That's exactly what Jesus is offering us a cure for, spiritual fatal insomnia. And that cure is found in our text, which we just read, which is Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, and here's what it reads. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Make no mistake about it, this is the only cure for spiritual fatal insomnia. There are no other cures. There's no other treatment at all for it. And so if you want the cure for spiritual fatal insomnia, you've got to go to the cure giver. If you want the cure, you need the rest that he offers. And you need to experience that, not just in part, but fully. And so if you want to experience that, maybe for the first time, or more fully as somebody who has come to rest in Christ— Then look with me at Matthew chapter 11. Turn your Bibles there, where we're going to look at verses 25 through 30, where we are going to find the three things that we must know to find true rest. Because without these three, you will not have true rest. To find rest, we must know the problem of rest, the path to rest, and finally, the person of rest. There is so much here in this text If you would pray for me throughout this sermon, I would appreciate that. Why is there a problem of spiritual restlessness? Sin. Because of sin. We are all born sinners who choose to sin as well. And sin causes our restlessness. And it causes our restlessness 
because sin is a burden, and we all carry it. I like in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan does a really good job of illustrating this by showing Pilgrim, who's carrying this super heavy burden that just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, no matter how much moralism he does, no matter how obedient he tries to be, it just keeps getting heavier and heavier, and it drains him, and it wears him out. And so too does it happen with every single one of us, even if we aren't fully aware of that draining. I don't know about you, but I've tried sleep medication myself sometimes, and there's this drug called Ambien. I would not recommend it. And Ambien's, this is a nasty drug. And what I realized, having taken it for about a week, is I didn't actually hit true rest. Because Ambien, there's lots of drugs like that that get you asleep, but they prevent your body from hitting the REM stage of sleep. And that can happen to us. We can think we're fine, but the reality is the sin upon our backs is growing and growing and growing, and we're just masking the problem until one day the effects of it hit us in full, and they hit us hard. Another way to think about this is to borrow Jesus' illustration, which I don't know why, it's always better than my illustrations, but look at verse 29 with the yoke. What is a yoke? Well, it's not the center of an egg. Okay, it is, but not in this illustration. That's not what he's talking about. A yoke was a harness that they attached to an animal in order to make so that they could pull heavy wagons, that they could pull big plows, whatever. It made so that they could pull heavy objects. And if, back then, if you were going to pull really heavy objects, what you typically would do is you would put two animals together because, you know, if you put two animals together, that's better than one. And this was the old school method of adding more horsepower to your pulling, which actually is where horsepower comes from now that I think about it. But when it comes to this yoking, if you know anything at all about yoking, you know that you can't mix two animals together for the yoking, right? Like you can't take a donkey and mix that with an ox and get good results out of that. Now, why can't you do that? Well, it's not just because Deuteronomy 22.10 says not to. It's because they won't work together in tandem. They won't work in sync. It's not going to work. They have different paces. They have a different stride, different strengths, and different speeds. And because of this differences between the two, one's trying to go at this pace, one's trying to go at that pace, all those sorts of things, they cannot be yoked together. And if you try to yoke them together, what's going to happen? You're going to hurt the animals. It's not going to go well. Not only will you just tire them out, but like we just said, you can end up hurting them. Now, here's the thing. Every single one of us is yoking ourselves to something in our lives in order to try to carry that heavy burden called sin that we just talked about. We're all trying to do this. Even if you don't think you're trying to do this, you're trying to do this. You're yoking yourself to something. I don't care who you are. Deep down inside, you know there's something that is making you tired. You know there is something that is making you restless. And that something is called sin, whether you know it's sin or not. Sure, not everyone calls it that, but make no mistake, every one of us, even the most oblivious, self-aware, lacking, obtuse nitwit, knows that they have a problem. They do. And that's why we try to cover up said problem with all these things, with all these masks. How do we try to deal with the problem? By yoking ourselves to someone or something that we believe will help us carry this heavy load. 
We all do this. But here's the thing about this. No matter what, whatever it is or whomever it is that we try to yoke ourselves to, it's an unequal yoking. It's not going to work. What's going to happen is it's just going to tire us out. And not only will it leave us restless and tired, but it's going to end up hurting us and the one or the thing that we are attaching ourselves to in this yoking. Because we're unequally yoked. It's not meant to do what we think it's going to do. Think with me for a second about the kind of things that we yoke ourselves to. What are those kind of things that we do? About love. Romantic interests. We look to our spouse or that special somebody to bring us the rest from the burden that we carry. But it doesn't work. It can't work. And if we insist on forcing that relationship to bring us rest through this unequal yoking, we're going to damage the relationship, aren't we? Absolutely we will. We're going to damage the relationship greatly. This is why you will often find a spouse who's too scared of their love interest, of their spouse, to lovingly confront them. They sit by and just become a doormat because that relationship and that false peace that's in their relationship is an idol to them. It's what they're looking for to find rest for their souls. And this happens in all sorts of relationships. It's not just isolated to romantic ones. So often, even in the church, what do we do? We don't deal with conflict. We want church, our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be this kind of lovey-dovey, just peace thing. And why? We don't want conflict. We don't want to deal with that because that peace that we have with here, we, we, we're yoked to it. That's where we're trying to find our rest. We've made it the center of our happiness. But it's a false peace that we've yoked ourselves to. And, we, and when we do this, it comes with great relational costs. It hurts us, and it hurts the one or the thing that we're yoked to. When this happens, this is why little mole problems, tiny little, you know, they become mountains. Mole hills become mountains in our relationships. And it's because we've yoked ourselves to peer approval. We've yoked ourselves to becoming accepted, to be thought highly of even. We want to be known as the person who is good at this or the person who, we, who people can go to when they're struggling with this. We want that, and we want that because that's where we're trying to find rest for our souls. We've yoked ourselves to something that can't help us carry that burden, and because that happens, you know what this looks like in your relationships? When somebody slights you even a little bit, Oh, that's a big deal. How dare you? Right? We overreact. Little slights become massive betrayals that seem to cripple us. And rightly so, because that's where we're trying to find rest for our souls. This is why, another example, parents, they sometimes crush their children with unrealistic expectations. And it's because the parent is trying to find their rest by yoking themselves to that parent-child relationship and fulfilling their dreams through their child. And this results in one of two things. Either it results in the kids despising their parents or their kids becoming unhealthily attached and smothered by their parents. It's a terrible thing. We all do this. Every single one of us naturally yokes ourselves to something, and the Bible calls this idolatry. It actually calls it slavery. 
We are all slaves to our sin. And because of this, that is the ultimate reason that you and I struggle with restlessness. Because we are trying to carry the burden of our sin by yoking ourselves to someone or something that can't handle that weight. Sure, it might seem like it's helping at first, but make no mistake, it's not. Not at all. One of the common things we yoke ourselves, and this is one's pretty obvious, we've talked about this one a lot, is religion. You ever thought about that? You can yoke yourself to religion in a way where you're trying to find rest for your soul, and it's not going to give you rest. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean this. We tell ourselves that if I follow the rules, if I know more or live better than the people around me, right, then I'm, I'm one of the serious ones. Look at all these jokers. Get on my level. We don't say that outright. Maybe we do, and we're really egotistical, but we think that way. Our hearts at least think that way. And we do so because we're trying to find rest for our souls. We tell ourselves that if we know more than more people, if we serve more, if we pray more, if we go to church enough, then we'll find the spiritual rest for our souls. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we're yoking ourselves to something that will destroy us as we destroy it. See, looking to religious obedience to bring us rest is a lot like yoking yourself to a racehorse. It might seem all right at first. But once that beast gets moving along, you're going to get drug behind it to your death. And so we have a very real problem on our hands here, don't we? We must not yoke ourselves to anything, but at the same time, we can't not yoke ourselves. We're yokers at heart. So what's the solution to this? The solution is knowing the right path to rest, which is our second point. To find rest, we must know the problem of rest, and secondly, the path of rest. Look at verse 25. I'm going to read verse 25 through 27 again. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. All right, now if you were with us last week, uh, we said that Matthew 11 could be rightly understood as basically a big response to John's doubt, which is the very first part of Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist, he's in prison, Uh, he's about to be executed for challenging Herod and confronting him of sin. John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ, and he sends messengers of his, his own servants and disciples, to Jesus, and he's like, what's going on? Are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one? And what does Jesus tell him? Yes, he rattles off a whole bunch of miracles right there in front of him, which fulfill messianic prophecies, showing that he is the Messiah. But one of the reasons John was asking If Jesus was truly the coming one, it was because Jesus' path didn't seem to match the path of Messiah, at least not according to John's expectations. See, John only saw this in part, and so it didn't match John's expectations. And why not? Because the people's Messiah was being rejected by the people. See the problem there? 
He was the Messiah for the people, but the people rejected him, didn't they? And we're going to see that even more heavily next week as we jump into Matthew chapter 12. And so if the people were rejecting their Jesus as Messiah, then how on earth could Jesus be said Messiah? The answer is he could be the Messiah because the path to rest was not the expected path. Not at all. What has Jesus been telling us over and over and over throughout the book of Matthew? The path to the kingdom, the path to rest, it's not the wide path. It's not the broad path. It's the narrow way. Remember, he told us that back in Matthew chapter 7. It's the narrow path. It's a path not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. It wasn't for the spiritually healthy, but the spiritually sick. Not for the spiritually rich, but for the spiritually poor. That was Jesus' point as he began his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in verse 25 again, Jesus tells us it's a path for who? Not the wise, not the understanding, but children. Now what does Jesus mean by that? Is he telling us that stupid people go to heaven and smart people go to hell? No. Not at all. That's not his point. Jesus' point is simply this, that people who have yoked themselves to their own wisdom, to their own understanding, are actually fools. It's the, in the gospel, we call this the great reversal. And it's this, the first will be last, and the last will be first. That's Jesus' whole point. It's getting to the heart of the matter. Are you looking to your accomplishments? Are you putting your identity in the things that you've done to find your rest? Or are you finding it in Christ? And this is a path that Jesus points out to John that many would miss. In fact, most of the Israelites at Jesus' time missed this path, didn't they? They absolutely did. And that's why Jesus pronounced the woes upon the cities who had rejected their Messiah. But here's the question then, and this fits with John's doubt. Was that a failure upon God's part? No, it wasn't. Not at all. See, the rejection of the Messiah was actually, if you read this text, it's a part of God's plan. You see that in the text? That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this was a part of God's plan. It wasn't a, oops, what do we do now thing. It was a part of a sovereign God's plan. Look at verse 25. What's Jesus doing here in verse 25? Look at your Bibles and think about it for a second. What Jesus is doing right at the start of verse 25 is he's praising God. And why? What's the reason for his praise? Well, he starts, he begins praising God the Father, his Father, showing intimacy and closeness between God the Father and Christ his Son. And he calls him the Lord of heaven and what? Earth. And why is he the Lord of heaven and earth? I think it's because he's the Lord of heaven and earth, not just heaven. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. His will is law. What he desires comes about because he is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And so why is Jesus praising God the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth? Look what he says. 
Because God has chosen to do what? Hide these things from who? The wise and the understanding. God's doing that. He's hiding these things from the wise and understanding. Now, what are the these things? Well, it's quite obvious in this context. It's God's revelation to man. It's God's plan and works in heaven and on earth. It's everything that God was doing and primarily what he was doing through his son, Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah, which is all of Jesus' life and mission. That was the these things that Jesus is talking about. It's the salvation. It's bringing salvation to humanity. It's bringing rest to the restless. That's what he's talking about here. And so here is Jesus praising God for doing something that offends our sensibilities. He's praising God for hiding these things from basically all of Israel. This is remarkable stuff. And if that doesn't trigger us Western Americans enough on its own, keep reading through verse 27. What is Jesus saying in verse 27? He's saying that God the Father has done what? He's then handed all these things over to Christ, his Son. No one knows the Father except for the Son. That's the only path to the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Period. Full stop. It's the only path. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And then something that's even more shocking, what does he say? And whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You can try to spin that statement any way you want so that it doesn't offend our individualistic Western sensibilities. Good luck. You're going to need it. This is a hard saying, is it not? It's self-evident. It's straightforward. There's not much debate about these verses and what they're saying. There's no way around it. Verses 25 through 27 are high sovereignty verses, even if we don't like it. That's what they're saying. This church is sovereign grace at its finest. God is bringing about his sovereign saving will. How? Ephesians 1 tells us how. According to the pleasures of his will, which is very similar to what verse 26 says. Look at In accordance to what? His gracious will. That's what's decided these things. He has decided to hide these things from the wise and instead to reveal them to who? To whom the Son chooses. This is a hard saying. I get it. It offends us. It seems unfair to us. It seems downright scandalous to us. And yet, here's the thing, for the childlike heart, this actually is a wonderful, glorious, beautiful, sovereign grace that saves not the wise, not the rich, not the powerful, but whom? Those who realize, rich and poor alike, that before God they are completely spiritually bankrupt and found wanting. You see why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing? And again in chapter 2, he says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. And why are they folly to him? Because even the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. That's Paul's point in those opening chapters. 
The gospel of Christ Jesus is for the meek and the weak, not the prideful and the strong. We don't normally do this, but I actually want to read about 12 verses here in 1 Corinthians, so don't zone out. Follow along with me here, and this helps us kind of wrap this all together. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the, wor- the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The gospel of Jesus is for the meek and the weak, not the prideful, not the strong. It is for little children, those with childlike faith, who place their trust in God, not themselves, not the wise, not the understanding, who were smart enough to figure out God's plan of salvation. No, the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, he sovereignly chose to save the spiritually blind, the spiritually lame, and the spiritually dead. And he chose to save them upon the narrow path of grace. And that is the path that all little children of faith walk upon, which alone leads to rest for our souls. And why? Because the path of grace is where they find ultimately the person of rest who alone gives rest to those who labor and are heavy laden. Which leads us to our final point. To find rest, we must know the problem of rest, the path to rest, and finally, the person of rest. Verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't say, come to me and I will will completely remove the yoke of bondage upon you and you will be free of yokes. Doesn't say that, does he? 
No, he says, come to me and I will give you a yoke that brings rest. You see how amazing this statement is? It's self-obviously true. It's ridiculously profound. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks of the yoke, of what is the kind of yoke that the Pharisees offered the people, and what kind of yoke did the Pharisees offer the people? It was a heavy burden. That's what it was. It was impossible to bear, Jesus said. It weighed them down, calling them to a righteousness of their own that we know was unattainable. And so instead of looking to the righteousness that comes from God graciously to all who would believe in him as children of faith, these religious leaders encouraged people to look inwardly to their own self-righteousness. And that was putting a heavy burden upon them. But wait, I'm confused about these, pas- about these verses here in this passage because I thought this salvation was only for those whom the Father chooses. We just talked about that. What's going on here? Isn't that what Jesus says in verses 25 through 27, that only those whom the Son, the God chooses to save will be saved? Is that what he's saying? Yeah, well, yes, it is. But don't miss the point here. And hear me when I say this. Don't zone out or you're gonna, I'll, get, I'll get a phone call or an email from you and I'll say, you didn't listen to the rest of the sermon. Here's the point here. Do you see the mystery of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man completely at work in this text? It's kind of wrapped in a sandwich of it if you actually look at it. Because what's happening here is, look at verses 20 through 24. This is what we looked at last week. This is where Jesus is denouncing the unbelieving cities who refuse to repent and trust in him as their Messiah. And why would you denounce them? Why would you, you know, critique them for something? I mean, that's like being upset that the sky is blue if it's all just determined. Like, why is he doing this? Why is he holding them responsible? Well, I think it's because we're responsible for our sin, aren't we? Absolutely we are. But then again, as we just saw in verses 25 through 27, Jesus is not just acknowledging God's sovereignty in all of this, but he's praising God for hiding the light from those cities whom he just held accountable for rejecting the light. This is marvelous stuff. I don't know how to make sense of this. It is a mystery, a profound mystery, as Paul calls it. He is holding God highly responsible, isn't he? But he's also holding man responsible. And yet, right after showing us the responsibility of man and the absolute and total sovereignty of God, what does Jesus then go on to do? He tells us that everything is determined, so go ahead and sleep in on Sundays. Doesn't he? No. Does he tell us fatalism is just the way it is? You're programmed the way you are. You're going to just do what your DNA says? No. Jesus then goes on to offer an invitation. To who? All. To everyone. To offer an invitation to all with the condition who labor and are heavy laden and are tired of their restlessness. He offers to them true rest. And remarkably, this rest comes through a yoke that Christ offers. However, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, the yoke that Jesus offers isn't heavy. It isn't hard. It's what? It's easy 
and it's light. See, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, the learning that Jesus talks about here in the last few verses here that he's offering is from somebody who is gentle and meek. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees, the rest that Jesus offers actually provides true rest for our souls. And so Christ is telling us that he is the only cure for our spiritual fatal insomnia. He's the only one that we can yoke our hearts to that won't leave us restless. It's not religion. It's not moral law-keeping. It's not our career. It's not our hobbies. It's not our spouse. and It's not our kids. Nor is it our social status. Not a single one of those things that we are tempted to yoke ourselves to will bring us rest. Only Christ does. Only Christ's yoke brings rest for our souls. And so if we want the Prince of Peace to bring us peace, then we have to take his yoke upon us and learn from him. That's the condition here that Jesus says. What does it mean to take Christ's yoke upon us then? What what does this look like? What is he talking about? Well, he describes it. He says this is learning from him, okay? So, which means that this yoke is ultimately, if we look otherwhere in Scripture, we'll see this as well, but it's a yoke of bondage, the yoke of slavery to Christ, the yoke of discipleship. Christ is saying that we must yoke ourselves to him and him alone, which means we must become his disciple, which means we must seek to learn from him. We must seek to imitate him. We must seek to walk with him in the yoke of discipleship at his pace, at his speed, and at his step. And here's the remarkable thing. He is meek and gentle in this pace-setting thing that he calls us to yoke ourselves to him with. He's not hard. He's not rough with us. He is gentle and kind. And remarkably, when we yoke ourselves to Christ and walk in step with him, we find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And when that happens, we finally have rest for our souls. There's no way around it. Taking Christ's yoke upon yourself involves discipleship. It absolutely does. It involves commitment. It involves slavery, as we said before. So the question is, are you a disciple? Are you learning from Christ by listening to his voice in his written word? Are you putting yourself under the authority of the word of God? And I'm not just talking Sunday mornings. I'm talking Sunday through Saturday, all week long, seven days a week. This isn't just reading your Bible. This isn't just going to church on Sundays. I'm talking about seriously examining your life and seeing in what ways you are not walking in step with him in that yoke that he's given you. Because if that's not the case, hear me when I say this, you're not a disciple. You haven't come to have the rest that Christ offers. You just don't have it. All you're doing is you're taking religion and making that something you're yoking yourself to. You're looking inwardly instead of outwardly to Christ to find rest for your souls. And if you're doing that, the spiritual fatal insomnia is just right around the corner for you. 
And so if that's you, listen to verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For those who come, those who labor, those heavy laden souls who come to Christ, they find something remarkable, don't they? You find that verse 30 is absolutely true. For the yoke that Christ offers, though, yes, it is a yoke of bondage to him, it is a yoke of slavery, as we said, it is ultimately a yoke that is easy and light. And why is this yoke easy and light? It's because Christ bore the hardest and the heaviest of yokes that you and I deserve to bear. And he bore this upon the cross. The burden we carry was sin. We began with that, talking about our sin, talking about our problem. And it was a burden that absolutely would have crushed every single one of us under the weight of God's divine wrath and judgment. Nobody would have survived that. But in the great and infinite wisdom of God, God did what? He sent his son for us while we, will st- while we were still yet sinners to die for us to bear the weight of our sins, to bear the divine judgment upon himself that you and I both deserved. And so because Christ labored, because Christ was stricken and heavy laden, because Christ bore the hard and heavy yoke of God's divine justice, that is why he can now offer every single one of us a yoke which is easy, and a burden which is light. So here's the question for us. Is your soul laboring? Is your heart restless? Are you heavy laden? If so, behold your Savior. Turn to Christ, who alone will bring rest for your souls. Father, I pray for us now, Lord, that we would be able to find full rest in you, that we wouldn't wander from that state of rest, but that we would walk with you in the yoke that you've provided, which is gentle and light. Father, I pray for the one here today who may not realize that they are actually restless. Father, I pray that they would see clearly their restless state, and that they would repent and turn from their yoking to other things of this world, which is idolatry. So, Father, I just ask that by your grace, through your power, that we would rest in you. We'll give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.